Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is Monday, the 21st of September. Time is really flying by for me over the past couple of months. I don't know, is that happening for you, Andy and Tammy? Yeah, just a giant blob now. Time yeah. is meaningless. Yeah, it's also it's meaningless, but it also isn't like it was at the beginning of the pandemic when everything, when every day and every week felt like it was a year. Now yeah. it seems to just be kind of like sloughing off, you know, it's sort of all the, all the protein in it has broken down, <laughs> it's turned into mush. I've reached that part of the gym, of my Jim Jones, uh, Jonestown. Oh, are you stuff. almost at the end of yeah, this journey? Yeah, where they like describe okay. how decomposed the bodies are. That's how oh, I feel like time. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> That's how I feel <laughs> like time okay. is going, yeah. I expect to go there. You right need now. a snow shovel to get, to get time into a body bag. Um, oh yeah, but I actually I finished on my Jim Jones reading last night and I'm not reading for any specific reason. I just was interested in it. It's it's scary. I don't know. I find freaky. it scary. Um, yeah. I think someone should probably make a television show about Jonestown or a movie about Jonestown, but it would necessarily have to be reactionary. I think it would have to be like a conservative outlet that made it because you know, it's like the most, it's the most perfect thing to skewer like quote unquote woke culture is Jonestown because like all the things that conservatives think is true of the Black Lives Matter movement was probably true of Jonestown, you know, so like their projected vision of it, which is obviously a fantasy, but like, you know, that they had these radical anarchist uh, underpinnings that, um, you know, there was like, uh, that black people were being recruited and exploited into it, you know, using like some sort of social justice, like mentality that, that was actually being controlled by like a white narcissist. Like all these things are like sort of projections (laughs) of that white conservatives, at least the more like, I would say clever white conservatives have, you know, the other ones are just like, yeah, they're all terrorists. But like the ones that are like, you know, smart and like, this is actually a bourgeois white movement. It's all right. true of Jonestown. <laughs> and so, so whatever movie you would have to make for it to be kind of like biting and interesting would have to necessarily be conservative. Um, is that is that where um, Drink the Kool-Aid comes from? Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't Kool-Aid. The, right. It was, okay. it was, <laughs> that was also from like LSD. Who was doing all of the LSD experiments? That's not... No, no, that no. It's not okay. from Timothy Leary. It's from the cyanide that they made that they mixed with this thing called flavorade which is oh, like God. cheap kool-aid because like jonestown they didn't have particularly good food down there even though the people's temple had like millions and millions of dollars like jim jones was trying to save that for some reason or another i don't know it's uh i think this is the third week we've talked about it but why did why are you doing this jay i don't know What's i'm just fascinated of? by it i i wish that there was some project that i was doing it for but <laughs> maybe you should yeah i don't know I, I think there is part of my i think there is part of my brain where i i i probably am curious about this moment and how it you know yeah. whether or not it actually is going to lead to like a splintering of groups right like is because sure. i think about the like we talked about this a lot and we talked about it in a good context in the sense that like in 1968 uh, you had a ton of people that are radicalized by the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and then those people needed to do something, right? Like, they had been tear-gassed, they had bricks thrown at them, whatever, and then yeah. they go out, and some of them, you know, a small amount of them go out and start Jonestown, some of them start the Symbionese, like, Liberation Army, right. and uh, clearly that's going to happen to some extent right now, because there are millions of people who went out and protested, and there are thousands of people 
in Portland, Seattle, New York City, Washington, D.C., who keep protesting, who are getting tear gassed every night. Some of those people will be radicalized into something that will be, you know, that we'll read about in 50 years and be like, whoa, that was crazy. <laughs> I can't believe that. I can't believe they did that. You know? Yeah. So this is the worst case scenario is what you're you're researching. I'm just like curious about how it happens. We can talk. That's enough Jonestown talk at the beginning. Yeah, of it's interesting show. that Occupy didn't lead to that kind of thing, though. Well, I, would, I think some people would argue it. Way. It did a little bit, you know, but I don't know where it went to. I don't know about. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of tales of it, but I don't see any in like radical splinter groups. No, I don't see any of that. So we'll see. Yeah, a lot of them are like in labor unions and foundations. I think what happened is that, it, or like they started podcasts, you know, yeah. oh God, <laughs> instead of, instead of, uh, instead of kidnapping Patty Hearst. Yeah. They, they, they started like, Jacobin. Yeah. They're like, well, I'm going to actually leave my job as a fact checker at Esquire and I'm going to start my own podcast. Like that was, that was a radical, that was a radical moment. Look, like, we're doing the same thing. So there's no judgment. We like all those podcasts and, you know, we, we don't particularly <laughs> like Esquire magazine. So, you know, more power to all those people. Uh, so I wanted to start the show this week by talking about our favorite topic. But, you know, we can't stop talking about it. And sometimes I think we should stop talking about it because I am very conscious, as all writers are, of repeating things, you know, of repeating words. And like, it was like, how many shows are we going to have to put TikTok in the headline, right? But then <laughs> it keeps being a topic. And then at some point, it becomes malfeasance not to discuss it. So we have to discuss it. So Andy, what, what, what happened with TikTok? Can you, can you just give, give us three sentences? Uh, the deal with Microsoft blew up. Oracle stepped in. And I think Walmart is the third partner. And then Trump okayed it. And all of the fears about security and national security and all that stuff apparently don't matter anymore uh and then trump said we'll use the i don't know what like the transaction fee like five billion dollars somehow going to appear as a result and that's going to go into a 1776 education fund which is trump's response to 1619 <laughs> yeah. Marty, this is such the sweet spot of our podcast as soon as they saw this headline i was like this is made for us okay so we're gonna play we're gonna play a little bit of the clip here of trump of Trump saying this stuff. Okay. Critical race theory, the 1619 project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve. The civic bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. Andy, you're a you're you're a historian. Uh, you think about. <laughs> dates in the past <laughs> what, do, what do you think is happening here uh i don't know all the historians i know were like tweeting about how they weren't going to watch it because it was so painful he had this whole press conference and event with basically like fake historians like uh newt gingrich style historians who were like <laughs> you know regurgitating some republican version of u.s history um so honestly i, don't, I think a lot of us are just like are okay. especially repelled by all that I don't know. I mean, it's a reaction to 1619. I, I mean, what I really think is happening is, you know, uh, what's the phrase like wagging the dog tail or whatever, like yeah, distracting yeah, people yeah, from yeah. COVID and mobilizing the base with xenophobia and racism and all that. Um, yeah. But and so the 1619 and critical race theory, for some reason, are the uh, targets of, uh, of uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's like a stand in for critical race theory. I don't know why that became the one, but it's like a stand in for, you know, white fragility, woke culture. 
um, diversity projects, like everything, you know, that the GOP has politicized as like the this culture war that's like the basis for why they, they will get people to vote Republican um, for like reasons and having nothing to do with like the economy or COVID, right? Yeah, and it seems to not be, I, I don't know, Tammy, do you think this is an effective strategy for the for the GOP? I think so, actually. You do think so. <laughs> I do. I think that, yeah, in the same way that all these culture war topics like get people's attention, this is very effective. The the sort of patriot, patriotic, like knee-jerk thing is extremely salient right now. You see it here for sure in Montana, but elsewhere as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't, like from an objective standpoint, and this is just a for me, it's like it's very difficult for me to believe that anybody cares about the 1619 project, right? Except for like Andrew Sullivan, Connor Freidersdorf, and people <laughs> who I generally used to think operated in pretty good faith. You know, like these are concerns that they had, and it wasn't their fault if, you know, Robert Mercer was paying like somebody to like push it up to Donald Trump, who was then going to turn into some sort of fascist talking point. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have in the past blame those people but now the pipeline is so fast and so immediate right like you know you have this conceptual james guy who is literally an idiot has no you know he's just some guy on twitter he starts yelling about critical race theory other people do andrew sullivan does not understand what critical race theory is he starts tweeting about it and then like three weeks later it shows up and donald trump is banning (laughs) critical race theory what the fuck is happening and so, well, and like obviously, he doesn't actually know any of the details of the sixteen nineteen project or any of these theories he's talking about, right? Yeah. So it's just like symbol. I mean, the argument would be like sixteen nineteen is going to be taught to your children in the schools now, and also CRT, I guess, is. Uh, yeah. I guess the claim is like critical race theory is being taught to the military or to it is, yeah, right at West Point, and yeah. uh, I don't know, maybe like companies or whatever. Like, yeah. so the point is like when these not when these things are just stuck in the ivory tower, quote unquote, but that it's going to like come for yeah. you. And so, yeah, so there's this weird, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a fear that the uh, elites, the elite liberals on the East coast or whatever uh, are not going to, are now going to like going to come for you. And, and what do you guys imagine people are hearing in that? I mean, are they basically just hearing like your kids are going to be subject to an education in which like mm-hmm. black people are centered? Like, is that basically the fear? No, like, I not- think, I think that, Okay, Andy, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say it's not so much. I mean, they might be hearing that it's also just like we white people are like ashamed of our history or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, Jay. Oh yeah. Well, I okay. Like I agree with both of you, and I think that this is basically the way that the Trump administration, probably through Stephen Miller's office, is taking part of the culture war and essentially saying like, look. Even the the elite liberals that you hate in the media, you know, the fancy liberals, they get everything wrong. This is not even a work of journalism. It is like a, all of them have been taken over by these uh, radicals, right? So it's part mm-hmm. of the radical left elite narrative. And uh, that they're indoctrinating their kids through the schools. And that actually, I do agree with you in the sense that the 1619 Project and who knows about it doesn't matter at that point, right? It's like totally. it, they, the, the thing that made the 1619 Project a branding success, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but, you know, in a sense where they were printing out tote bags with, like, 1619 <laughs> and 1776 crossed out, right? Like, that did happen. Um, yeah. It was a huge marketing campaign, and the reason why it was successful was because it was making this provocative idea that the founding of the nation was 
1619. You know, like I don't, I don't, like I don't, I don't quite buy this like idea that that argument was never put forward. It was like actually the existential, like being of the argument was that of the right. of the whole project was that. So. And that's um, why it was interesting. Yeah, that's why it was interesting. That's why it was compelling. That's why it was provocative, right? And the uh, their argument essentially, I think, is what Andy said. It's like this jingoistic, you can't take 1776 away from us. I don't right. know, Tammy. I don't think it is effective, though, because, like, if you look mm-hmm. at if you look at polling, like, people don't give a shit about this. You know, like, like it's not, like, race is really not a top concern for anybody right now. Um, it's all economy and coronavirus. And yeah, I think that because Trump is doing badly on the economy and the coronavirus, he's trying to pivot it to this. But I don't think that it works because it's just so weird. It's almost like the people who thought of it are, you know, are too online. And I think yeah. it's very specific. But if you think about what a Fox News watcher is consuming, which is a huge part of the voting public, like really big. Yeah, yeah. Um, I my feeling is that they're hearing just like a cavalcade of affirming things of like whiteness and of white history. And so I think it's I think it's effective insofar as it is basically another sort of backpat at a time when people are suffering. Yeah. And so it fits into a worldview that they desire. And and don't you think this is also functioning similarly to like the culture war over like gender and like transgender bathrooms, which is Definitely. not even like yeah. a specific yeah. content. It's just like exactly. this thing that we grew up with. Uh, being taught is now being taken from us and so it's just like it just kind of strikes at the heart of their sense of like what's common sense and like what's the world that we like what are like the natural laws of the universe that we grew up believing right so it's not even so much like the content it's just like the sense of things used to be better and now you're trying to take away how things used to be let's talk about the second part of it which is actually more important than our thoughts about critical race theory in my opinion at least which is that you know this is a I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly a kind of fucked up thing that Trump did, right? Where he essentially holds a bite dance, which is the owner of TikTok for ransom. And they say, you got to sell this thing. And then he takes whatever weird, you know, like uh, kickback that he gets from the deal, which I don't even understand why he gets a kickback from the deal. But sure, you know, I guess it is like the fucking mafia at that point, right? Like he's like selling the Coca Cabana and he has to kick the money back up to the five families, something like that. So, um, he he's using this five billion dollars for this buddy. So, um, Andy, do you think this signals anything about about a future in terms of where you know business, not just against Chinese nationals, but against maybe even like Chinese Americans, becomes extremely hostile? So this is through I forget what the name of the this committee called CFIUS. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No, CFIUS. It was a committee created a few years ago. This is not the first time this has happened. It's like a committee that's in Congress. That's job is to like uh, oversee like basically to stop when too many foreign companies are buying American stuff. Oh, okay. uh, so the one case I knew was like a uh, Chinese company had bought like the Waldorf Astoria or these like hotel groups. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the United States intervened. So and, and I think it's that group is somehow involved in this. So I don't think it's the first time this has happened. Um, and I guess, you know, we could speculate it's going to happen more. I mean, you know, it kind of depends but on those the Those two aren't analogous, right? Like, uh, but is SIFI, because b- blocking the buying of something is different than forcing the sale of something that already exists. Yeah. So this was about on, I don't know, I guess maybe they're both on national security grounds. This idea that well, I don't know if like buying a hotel in New York City is a national security threat. That's just about protecting American capital, right? Yeah. Um, and then this is like this. 
I think what's interesting about this is like it just seems very obvious like the whole national security stuff was so cynical because it totally. just dis- just disappeared. And I'll be curious if um, all the people who are like it's a national security threat are going to shut up now. Okay, um, so because- to clarify then what you're saying just for the listeners Andy is like it's a, the national security threat being all the stuff about how China is using TikTok as spyware and that there was nothing that changed from the from the from that threat and when it was being discussed to the current yeah. Oracle Walmart TikTok that exists that there's no stipulation that they have to fix any of that and so it means that yeah, yeah. it's all garbage so the data yeah. goes to ByteDance now it also goes to Oracle and Walmart but as, okay as so to play out. like devil's advocate like assuming that there is some sort of devious strategy behind I mean obviously that it's devious but um would Trump say yes but if Oracle and Walmart acquire 20 percent of this new entity that is founded just to exist in the U.S. we can keep an eye on it to make sure they actually don't feed data to China I mean is that basically would they say that in response it seems ludicrous but I I, might, I think, think it's a lot of things I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if the Chinese government wanted to, they could still get the data. I know, from, right? Yeah. So, and yeah, they um, could just get it from Oracle or from. Well, and ByteDance <laughs> is still yeah. owning eighty yeah, percent. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, they still have it. Um, so all that stuff about how the Chinese government has the right to, you know, like commandeer it is still true. Um, mm-hmm. And people were saying this like, uh, like the very first news cycle, like one or two days after, lots of people were like, "Yeah, this doesn't change anything." Um, so we'll see. I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting to believe that almost all this criti- criticism of Chinese national security uh, stuff is always just like a bargaining chip for Trump. Yeah. Um, or, or for these companies, right? And then yeah. they just kind of magically disappear when like a trade deal gets done or something. Here's here's my question about it: Is it necessarily a bad thing to have you know companies that have deep roots in China? having to pay this type of, you know, extortion tariff. My honestly what I think Peter Navarro or whoever's in charge of this is saying is that this is what China does to us. Yeah. Which is if you do business in China, you have to partner with a Chinese company. Yeah. That's probably how they're thinking about it. Uh, and honestly that might even I don't know why they think that's they won't say that out loud. But some people have said that and some people have been like China created the first firewall, so we're just creating our own firewall. Yeah, uh, is right. that necessarily a bad thing? I think so. I don't know. It sucks to be in China and not be able to use Google. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys worried about like every country having splinter a splinter net? I mean, this yeah. is bad. I mean, on the not- other hand, the internet is not really the world's internet. It's America's internet. No, I agree with that. Right. Like on that. Yeah. I mean, some, so some of the sort of like internet is free, of course, is like artificial, but also right. to have completely walled off internets, which is I think where we're heading. Is part of this that is like extremely uncomfortable. Well, I meant more just the business. But you're talking idea. about the protectionism. Yeah. So, like for example, yeah. you know, like the, the what strikes me is that when the U.S. does this stuff, it's always so symbolic and it's pointless, mm-hmm. right? So, like for example, what you're talking about, like the you know the Chinese company trying to buy the Waldorf Astoria. Mm-hmm. The Chinese people already, they, the Chinese investors, I believe, already bought the Plaza, right? They already bought. Every that single, was Japan. Oh, but maybe also maybe China now. Same thing, know. whatever. So, but like you know, they, <laughs> Chinese Chinese people have, like there's they've bought a ton of expensive real estate all over New yeah, York City, sure. right? The New York City high end real estate market, and then trickling down to the you know mid tier and lower tier real estate market for years was was completely fueled by by foreign investment, right? But mm-hmm. A lot of it coming from China, and. Totally. So the idea that they would like be like not the Waldorf story, it's like you already sold half the fucking island of Manhattan, right. you know? Like, like come on, yeah. you know? Like, what, what are you, what yeah. are you getting fucking 
Chrissy about uh, right now. And so <laughs> um, that's what it felt like with this thing, where it's just like you already sold it off. You know, the NBA is right. controlled by you know, not to get I'm, I'm being half ironic here. But, you know, like the NBA, you already sold off to China, you know, like <laughs> you've already sold off like half of the American Internet. You know, the universities are all run. You know, every STEM yeah. program in America, graduate program is just Chinese training program. And like, you know, so and now you want to get mad about TikTok, you know, like that's what it right. feels like to me, at least, you know, of course, if I if I had that type of mentality. And so my thinking is just that, look, there is some truth to if you that perhaps, you know, that basically people turn a blind eye to all of this because some people were getting rich. Right. Is there yeah. an argument to be made that maybe this is a good thing, you know, they're outside of, you know, being put out by Trump? Hmm. I think it's a sign that America, I don't know. I don't know how to put a value judgment on this. Countries that are developing, quote unquote, developing countries do this all the time. And that's okay because they're developing uh, like protectionist measures. And they're yeah, like, the, like Vietnam, the richest countries in the example, world. Yep. Basically, every poor country has protectionism. And all, it's only the rich countries in the world, like the global hegemon, right? First, the British, now America are the ones who trump free trade because it benefits them the most. So in a way, this is kind of an acknowledgement that America is either afraid that they're not going to be the you know, the, the leader in free trade around the world or, uh, you know, either they're afraid they're not going to be anymore. They're afraid they're not going to be anymore. So I don't even know if, if it's good or bad. It's just like, this is where we're at now. Like we have to be worried that China's going to challenge us and we have to start um, using the protectionist measures that um, I think, you know, would have been unthinkable after like World War II when America was like lending money out to everyone and like helping the rest of the world build their own economies. Right. But- to be fair, I think a lot of developing countries want to use protectionist measures and aren't actually allowed to under international laws. So there's always, right. you know, WTO right. cases because right. the Germans are angry at the smaller right. countries. So in practice, and if you look at something like NAFTA, I mean, the failure of protectionism in the Mexican market right. is why Mexico's economy tanked, you know. So I right, think right, right. actually it's been something that's been deployed really unfairly and I mean, I, to me, this kind oh, of yeah. speaks... I'm not defending to, it. I'm just saying... No, I know, but I don't think actually the smaller countries have been able to use it effectively. I mean, I kind of wish they could actually better. <laughs> and I, I, I've, I guess my feeling is like this is just another indication of how little trust we have in any sorts of inter- international institutions and yeah. how the Trump administration like wants to have this, like feels, I guess, beleaguered or is sort of like, you know, feels that is useful to seem beleaguered. Mm-hmm. that it has to erect these sorts of things outside of the usual rules of business. Yeah. Uh, do you think it, I mean, my, here's one thing I was wondering, and I don't necessarily believe this, so please don't attribute it to me, but it's a thought th- that I have sometimes. Do you think that part of the reason why things are so focused on United States nationalism is because uh, we're, because of the enormous focus on American racism? As being what do you like, mean? But because right now the only way that people, I've been thinking about this a lot, even in the context of Jonestown, right? Like part of the reason why I'm interested in Jonestown is because I think like, well, when people have no political agency anymore, what do they turn to? So the people who joined Jonestown are mostly old black people, right? Like it was mostly old black women um, who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And that's part of the tragedy of it, right? It's just that these are people who had almost no agency. A lot of them were living in poverty. And then there were people in Jonestown who were like rich white people, but it was much rarer. Like 70, 80% of Jonestown, I think, were, were older black people. So, um, and of the People's Temple were. And so uh, I 
I don't know. I think that more that right now people have absolutely no agency or they see no real political agency that they can do. And the only thing that's ever offered up to them is American racism as a way to deal with it. Do you think that the sort of singular focus on American racism mm-hmm. as the one political idea right now for the progressive left is also what inspires nationalism? But the nationalist turn in on the American left is decades in the making, right? So do you think that, um, I don't know, maybe it seems particularly pronounced now, but if, yeah, but if you talk to people who are in their 60s and 70s who've been doing this stuff since like basically the new left, they would basically say that, you know, maybe it was the failure of the Soviet model that led, you know, us to become exceedingly nationalistic. Like you hear a lot of people say that, or since Vietnam, basically, we haven't had as much interest in internationalism. So I think kind of a long train, but I do agree that there is on the left right now, the kind of racial justice left, a problem in not thinking more globally. Do you, well, okay. So here's a question then, do you like from a more recent example than um, the sixties or the seventies, Tammy, what about like the free Tibet movement? Do you think that the free Tibet, or Andy, you you should answer this as well. Like, do you think that the free Tibet movement, so that you can get in trouble with Chinese censors next time you're trying? (laughs) Thank you, Andy. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Andy's going to activate because he needs to go to China to do some research. He's like, oh, I can't say anything. (laughs) 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 They all have cell phones now. (laughs) Um, Do you think that, Terry, do you think the free Tibet movement happens in 2020? interesting i think that some of the palestinian rights stuff has mirrored a free tibet model Mm. um right now you don't hear too much about it except for like in more like middle east focused activist circles Mm. and and to be fair tibet free tibet was not the political time bomb that that right. or the political bomb that free Palestine is right like sure. um, yeah. so um, yeah it was definitely like a kind of safer yeah it was like thing, but... it was like cuddly in some sort of way like yeah beastie boys and like yeah Tibet <laughs> put these prayer flags up in my house smoke a bunch exactly of weed. namaste it's not what free Palestine <laughs> vibe yeah. is <laughs> but um, yeah I mean I think your larger point being like the the sort of thing we've talked about before like the sweatshop you know, activism on campus, is it now just like getting professors fired sort of thing for saying bad things, you know, this kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a little bit of a concern in the kind of trends of what's popular among like young leftists. I don't think international causes hold a lot of sway right now. Anyway, yeah. what about you? To, to, free Tibet, you know, let's say like America's Beastie Boys of today, whoever that is, Machine Gun Kelly, Tom Morello, yeah, Tyler Hero, <laughs> Tom Morello is the worst Twitter feed, by the way, you want to talk about somebody who like what goes, who just should, who's, you know, went from being like pretty cool to like just being like a total dick bag, and it's only What's because he, he's like, oh, basically, no. he's like a, he, he's like, he, he's like Andy Barowitz, like he has like Andy Barowitz's oh. like politics, he's horrible, he's like a center right, oh. like, you know, shut up and stop, you know, stop making noise. Just go out and vote, you morons. You don't know how the no, world works. And you're really? like, I, oh, I now I now I understand that you, why you went to Harvard. At the beginning, yeah. everyone was like, oh, it's really cool. This guy went to Harvard. Now I'm like, yeah, you fucking went to Harvard, you dickhead. Okay, so Andy, does the Free Tibet movement happen now? You know, Machine Gun Kelly gives a concert so, to Free Tibet. I mean, I'll be honest. I was kind of too young to really understand what was going on with the Free Tibet movement. Uh, but other than like the Beastie Boys and that it became the celebrity thing. Um, 
But that's I think you've understood it at that point. You know? <laughs> well, well, no, but I, I guess I'm curious, like, was there well, the turning point was mostly just like Tibetan refugees, right? Eventually kind of got this groundswell going as opposed to like, say, uh, with Xinjiang, where there's like an event and there's like news stories um, and uh, there's like, a, you know, a, a, and also with t- Tibet, there was like a spirituality element right? Where, the, yeah. right? where the celebrities are like, we want to. Uh, become Buddhists, whereas no one's going to be like, I want to become a Muslim, <laughs> you know, uh, with, with Xinjiang. So, oh, yeah, no one's going to want to be a Uyghur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was a weird thing going on with the 90s. Yeah, I think in the 90s you could say there was a weird cosplay thing going on, whereas like um, these, these like Western white liberals were like sick of their own civilization, so they wanted to like cosplay as someone else's, uh, which goes back to like the Beatles, right, and all that. Oh, yeah, um, but, but doesn't that also indicate or I'm asking you, like, you know, do you think that also no indicates so that, 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 that there was actual dis- sense that there was no political causes left in America that would be as important as free Tibet, right? So it doesn't, there needs to be found some foundational thing for people to, to even cosplay. No, I mean, I think like the Xinjiang Uyghurs things is, is going to get, is getting to that level, but it's not in the same sort of like cuddly, like you said, like cuddly we like we're all as one spiritual element it's kind of taking this harder militaristic you know per, perhaps as it should right uh turn where it's, where it's I, kind of fueled by like globalization is messed up as opposed to like globalization is connecting us to all these so, like i think in the 90s was globalization has revealed all these terrible things that we didn't see was coming yeah now it's we're at the point where people are like fuck globalization like i'm, I'm sick and tired of all I, the all this shit going on in the rest of the world yeah. that's how i feel yeah like, because there's a certain naivete to, like, anti-sweatshops and anti-Tibet that by now, like, people just feel like we've been talking about this for 30 years. Like, maybe the problem is, like, globalization itself. But it could be oriented a different way, which is, you know, I mean, I think, like, the this group that I've shouted out before, Dissenters, is trying to do left-wing campus organizing around foreign policy in the model of the Sunrise Movement. And what they would say is, sure, we had this sort of sweatshops movement. Now we can pivot it into divestment around you know, energy, but also around weapons. And we're in the middle of endless wars that we've started and they're still going. And so the globalization that we're involved with that is the most pressing right now is the one that's killing people. The one that is advancing foreign policy that we're not, you know, but that is a super hard ask. Like I like really admire them because that's really hard organizing to do because it's not in front of your face. Well, that's, that, that's, that was my general takeaway from that. It's just like, look, that that type of organization might be successful in a totally realistic front, right? Like it might actually get certain policies passed. It might be able to raise money from people who are interested. It might be able to mobilize some people, but it will never play on social media in the same sort of way. Like it'll never become a culture war topic. It'll never become something that everybody talks about. And that's, I think, part of because we've become so narrowly focused on American racism. Um, to the extent of everything else where the only issue that is discussed on those platforms is American is American racism and so maybe it feels more nationalistic this moment than it actually is but it also is sort of the world in it's in in another sense right like it's not like we can separate the two so easily anymore um yeah I don't know it's like the question we keep asking over and over again is like would the South Africa divestment movements that happened in the 90s, anti-apartheid movements happen mm-hmm. on campuses here in America in 2020. And I just think that if you say yes, that you're delusional, 
Like, I think you're completely delusional if you think that, like, 60% of the population of Wesleyan College, for example, will participate in a sit-in, you know, like, for to end apartheid. Like, it, it would never happen right now, you know? Mm. Right now, but I bet 80% of them would march for George Floyd Black Lives Matter now. Is there a difference in police brutality between the 19, early 1990s, late 1980s, and right now, you know, with the police and, like, no, there's no difference. If anything, you know, I don't know, probably gotten slightly better, you know, or it's yeah. probably about the same, you know. <laughs> there's no difference, right? The difference is that the focus has shifted towards that and that students' political, uh, young people's political outlet is through American racism. I'm not saying that that's bad, right? I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that I think that this is necess- sort of true. I don't know why we're... T- um, do you think it predates Trump? Yes. Because that to me... Yeah. Would, okay, because that to me I is salient, right? Like, was during Obama. I, think I know, but completely... like this kind of turn where we do that to the exclusion of like international concerns, because obviously things feel so horrible right now, and I can understand why people would really want to focus on the U.S. My... Yeah. My unthought hypothesis is just that we know where a lot of humanitarian, so-called humanitarianism leads, and it led to, like, the Iraq War, led to Afghanistan, right? Just, like, when the governments get concerned about what goes on in the rest of the world, I think a lot of us are like, we know where this goes. So that might lead to at least least a significant portion of the left being cynical about it. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. But then that portion should also militate against the wars we have. And like, you know, that should be our focus. So I think it it is interesting to see, like, what is then the step that goes after that? Um, I don't know what the step is that goes after that. But I don't I don't I I think it completely predates Trump. And, you know, I think that it's uh, it's something that was even starting when Tammy, you and I were in college. Um, Yeah. And I think Trump's a product of it with the end of the anti. Yeah, fair uh, enough with the anti-war movement at the time right because mm-hmm. that was the big thing when we were in school post 9-11 anti-war stuff yeah and that was i think that was probably the turning point right i think that if, if you can trace back to one event i think it would be 9-11 um mm-hmm. and that uh people started asking what the country is right like that yeah. was a big question and then a lot of people started asking well do i belong to that vision of that country okay uh, we got a lot of listener questions. As promised, we're going to read. Uh, we want to get through a lot of them because we want to. We do enjoy getting them, and we think it's important to have some sort of back and forth with you, the listener. And so, um, and we're curious in what you guys think about the show. And so, I think the best way to encourage more emails, which we, you know, is to just read them and to engage with them on the show. So, we're going to go through a few today. The first one, um, Andy, which which one was the first one that we did? Is from is it from Elaine here? Um, that's the first one you chose. Yeah. Um, the one you want to start with? Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is from Elaine. Uh, we won't read the last name just because, uh, yeah, we don't need to dox anyone. Um, (laughs) my question to you is how can we support Chinese international students and researchers? Is this a classic form of xenophobia or something more insidious? Also related, since I have your attention, my mom is anti, so anti-CCP, she's probably going to vote for Trump. It's her number one voting issue. She's part of that WeChat right-wing anti-CCP group you mentioned in a previous episode. I catch small mentions of how y'all think about this group and their mentalities, but I also love to hear more about it. <laughs> she wrote a follow-up and she said, my friends think it's an assimilationist tactic that is rooted in some sort of immigrant survival tactic. This is talking about her mother. Um, and after living under a regime where they uh, witnessed so much of their possessions taken away, 
they're unwilling to get taxed more here, especially in the name of social services, which they take pride in not having to utilize. <laughs> it's a, this is a good question today because, you know, um, the it seems like the person who Trump is going to nominate for the uh, vacant Supreme Court seat is a you know, very conservative Cuban immigrant uh, woman huh. from Florida who, um, you know, is going to throw all the usual anti... I, I, I cannot wait for all the usual leftists to just like be like, uh, not leftists, the usual liberals to just be like, she's so stupid. You know, doesn't she know that like, I, like, I don't understand how Hispanics could, could, could ever be conservative, you know, like, <laughs> like, don't they want my love? Like, don't, like, that's what I always hear whenever people say that. Like, they used to say that about like, you know, sometimes when I have some various red pill thoughts, you know, sometimes people in my mentions will just be like and i'm always just like no i don't actually care about like your like your like white hero shit is so annoying because essentially the only way that you can process things is like i'm a good human being and you're the beneficiary of me being a good human being and how dare you you know like like turn down my good good favor right like that's sort of the idea behind it anyway andy what do you think about this question well, so these are two questions. The first one was about um, this was circulating for a day, but they took it down. Some students in I think Houston or Texas they had uh, oh god, what was it? Uh, like foreigner or like alien? Oh yeah, yeah something yeah. like written on their um, doors. And yeah, and in terms of support, I mean, I don't know. Um, as I know, like a lot of educators um, are being pretty forthright about this and saying like you know. We're, especially with zoom and all that, like, uh, there's going to be just to say, like, you know, come to me if you have any questions about, um, saying anything on public, if you have any concerns about your visa status, et cetera, I think that's all we can do at this point and just kind of make sure that these avenues are available, but it is good to like proactively make it public because a lot of these students probably feel too shy or perhaps don't even know where to turn to so that at least it'll just like kind of be in their face as they, as they take these, these courses, but I, I mean, I feel bad for a lot of these students. Um, like, they're they're based. I think you know, talking about negotiating tactics earlier. I think they're also a bargaining chip between between the U.S. and um, the Chinese government. And I was thinking about like the parallel would be something like the Chinese government passed these national security laws in Hong Kong this summer, and I feel like that's their version of they see the Hong Kongers as sort of like the Americans, right? Mm-hmm. They're like striking back them the same way the Chinese the American government striking at the Chinese students. So. Um, I think, I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful to think about there's the big picture thing and it's not just, um, I don't think it's just like, I mean, obviously it's also just like straight up like individual racism also, right? But maybe the big picture can help you process it. Um, it the was, second part is interesting. I, I think we should do something. I, I want to do something about this, at, you know, maybe in another episode is to actually look at what's going on in these WeChat groups. Um, maybe I'll I'd interview. Kind of Maybe I'll interview the guy interviewed for my affirmative action article. He's yeah. like one of the founders of this movement. Oh, yeah. Um, he has interesting things to say. But anyway, what do you think about this? What, what movement are you talking about? Uh, just, you know, he's one of the main WeChat activists who, uh, you know, is trying he's to fighting sh- it. He's trying to fight the Trump stuff. He's no, no, no. Action. He hates affirmative action. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like, I, you know, I don't know. It's, this is a failing of mine, but I also think it's like part of being a journalist. But 
I, I actually enjoyed talking to him about his ideas because, you know, I don't That's agree good. with them, but I think yeah. that yeah. they're interesting. Um, well, what about this idea that, that this is a simulationist tactic that is, you know, that... <laughs> I think that might be us projecting a little bit. Yeah, me too. Of, me too. I don't think they care me about too. assimilating. Yeah. <laughs> I think they care about, like, like we talked about earlier, there's a sort of self-selection process. Who comes yeah. to the United States? Probably anti-communists. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's why I brought up the Cuban woman, right? Right, Which exactly. Is just like this idea that uh, that's actually one of the things that that guy said to me that that WeChat, the WeChat activist, he was like, because he lives in Orlando, and he was like, I have yeah. so many Cuban friends, you know. I was like, I'm sure you <laughs> fucking do. You guys have a lot in common, man. <laughs> um, Tammy, what about? I, let, let's talk about the second part, right? Which is the assimilationist part. What do you think? Do you think that yeah. this is projection, or do you think it's? Uh, what, what do you think? I think a lot of. I don't know about her mom in particular. I do think a lot of East Asian well-to-do immigrants are entrepreneur are in the entrepreneurial class, right? And so they would obviously have an interest in a low tax policy. And I think there is some aspect of kind of leaving behind whatever, you know, and kind of starting new, a new and priding. I think this part is right where she says they pride themselves on not receiving social services. They are playing the kind of good immigrant, bad immigrant game. Yep. And feeling like, oh, but, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We're like, they've bought into the whole, like, tax-paying American ideology. So I don't know if it's a tactic. I mean, I think it's an absor- absorbing of the values around you. And I think it's quite tragic. Yeah, I mean, I think that it also probably serves their interest, their self-interest better, right? Like, there's this, always this idea that being part of the liberal, centrist, democratic machine is better for all minorities. But I don't think that's true at all, you know? And I think that if you're an immigrant entrepreneur, for example, right? And you believe you want your kid to go to a selective school and you want the process to be colorblind and test-based. Um, your self-interests are much better served by the, by the GOP, you know, even with all the anti-immigrant stuff, as long as, you know, like, yeah, it's going to have like, I mean, one the, question. One, one question to ask is, let's just say to, you could somehow like magically make people stop thinking about the racial racist elements of the two parties. How how much do you think America would be realigned at that point? Oh my God! Of, well, that's like how many people join the Democratic Party just because it's the anti-racist party? Um, well, you would ha- if you're if we're talking about immigrants in general, right? Or just like that, Americans, right? Like for them, the two parties are basically come down to which one's racist oh. and which one's not. Or well, maybe most Democrats think that way. Yeah, I, let, let, I, 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 we can get there. Let me just answer the immigrant part first. I think most immigrants would join the GOP. You know, if there was not this sort of boogeyman of racism over the over their heads all the time, um, I don't know what mm-hmm. the Democratic Party stands for anymore. The central part of the Democratic Party, except we're less racist than the other people. What's Joe Biden's right. entire message is like decency, and you know Trump is racist, right? <laughs> I'm serious, like you know, like yeah. that's basically it. Um, and so I think that for a lot of people who come here and they, maybe they don't even pay that much attention to politics, but they pay attention to maybe a very focused type of politics. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's very difficult to understand why they would vote for Trump. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the conversation that's going to happen between now and the election is about the Latino voting, you know, like Hispanic Latino voting. Yeah. Like, where are they going to, why are they voting so much in Trump when he said that Mexicans are rapists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, well, a lot of them are Catholics, you know, a lot of them don't want abortion. A lot of them are very socially conservative. A lot of them are fiscally conservative and they have a huge range of opinion that comes with having a large population. But 
the and they feel no connection to people who are imprisoned. Yeah, and they feel no connection to people, like for example, just... who are like yeah, or they or they're mad at those people, right? Sure, um, for making for, them look bad and all yeah, that. for like or for like crowding the country. You know, like we came in legally, why can't you? Like all those yeah. opinions exist, and so I think I just don't. The a question that I have about that, Andy, and one that I think about constantly. It's not a Jonestown related question, but it is a question I think about a lot, which is just like, at what point does that stop appealing to people? It's I will say that for most of my life, I identified as like a liberal Democrat or on the left, you know, and a lot of the reason why was because I assumed that everybody on the right was racist. Right. Even though my own life experience growing up in the South, I would find that like, you know, the liberals that I'd met in Boston were actually much more annoyingly racist than a lot of the just sort of Trump supporting white people that I grew up with. Right. Like outside of that, I was still sort of in this mentality that I should care about racism and the way to care about racism from an electoral political perspective was to vote blue all the time. I don't believe any of that shit anymore. It's all gone. It's dissipated in my head. Like I don't I don't think the Democratic Party does anything about racism. You know, I think the GOP probably makes it slightly worse, you know, but I think that, you know, like I just don't believe that these types of things actually matter. You know, like mm. Obama's like immigration policies, if you look at it, were fucking racist as shit, you know, yeah. it's like. There's, there is no like the kids yeah. in cages are a huge difference, right? Like it is an escalation in a sense where it becomes a humanitarian disaster. It was already a humanitarian disaster at the border under That's Obama. True. So like, what are what are we even talking about here? Um, I don't know. Do you think that this is going to continue? Like, do you, like how long do you think this like appeal is going to work? Like, I just don't think it works anymore. It didn't work in 2016. Yeah, it definitely like, didn't work in 2016. And I, you know, but like, we're running it back, right? Even if even if Biden wins, it's going to be kind of a squeaker in an election that shouldn't be, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. That's a bad. It's a bad strategy. I don't know, but you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's 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 a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons they do this though. It's not because they actually believe it. Obviously, right? The yeah. Democratic politicians have their own thing going on sorry tammy oh no it's okay i think the one caveat to this i agree with this generally is the healthcare part of social services which even if you don't have a huge amount of sympathy for poor people and the general notion of welfare state provision i think there is broad-based frustration around not having access to basic health care in this country and that goes for people who are rich too oh yeah yeah and i went i think that yeah, well, I know the Democrats are, but, but we're not running on healthcare. We're running on Joe Biden. Know, it's not racist, even though he passed a crime bill. <laughs> yeah. I just mean like if we do kind of sweep that away and look critically, like hopefully that is the one thing that we can actually say matters because we have had more welfare state. You know, usually, well, I know there's so many caveats to this, but I think generally, in the very low standard that is the U.S., like the Dems have had more attachment to welfare state services yeah. than the Republicans. The last thing I'll say about this thing, which I find interesting, is that, um, you know, I think that we should allow our parents, you know, not my parents, and I don't think your parents, but we should allow that generation of people to not be pathologized in this sense where, you know, I think that a lot of elite white liberals would do being like, oh, they don't even know what's good for them if they vote for Trump. It's just like, I think they do know what's good for them. Did you see, did you see this demographic, did you see this chart that came out from uh, Asian, I don't know what the organization is, but we'll put it in the show notes that show the breakdown per ethnicity um, for, for Asian Americans. And no. by far the people who voted conservative the most are Vietnamese Americans and Indian Americans are the most like progressive left, left, left leaning. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But it makes sense. It makes sense in the sense like, you know, the people who came over from 
the uh, from Vietnam are mostly people who are in South Vietnam who fled, yep. right? The refugees, yeah. and um, it makes sense that they would hate communism. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's a self-selecting group, right? Yeah. <laughs> if all the refugees from, or if all the people in America who were, uh, you know, were fighting with Ho Chi Minh, I think that they they would have, you know, they would have different political yeah. leanings. But it, the interesting thing for me there was it wasn't even close. You know, they were by far the most conservative leaning of all, of all of the, uh, of wow. all of the Asian American groups, and Indian Americans, I think, interestingly, were you know by far the most liberal yeah, leaning. That's, that surprises me. There's um, always talk about how, yeah, you know, upper class, upper caste, the Indian diaspora is. Yeah, yeah. Well, not everyone is. You know, I think they're probably more uh, of Kamala Harris's mother than there are Dinesh Diseases <laughs> out there. You know, I guess I don't know. That's what the data shows, at least. Uh, all right. Question two. Uh, this is from Megan. Um, wait, are we reading this one? I kind of want to see all the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let. I, I like this one um, because we have not talked about it, and this is from Megan. She's like, "Could you talk about the NYPD task force on AAPI hate crimes? Asian American Feminist Collective has denounced it, but Chinatown neighborhood Facebook groups. I am part of. A lot of people are happy that the NYPD cares about them. It highlights the generational divide and differences in politics. So the NYPD task force is a uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It is a task force that the NYPD did to put out messaging and to maybe even investigate some of these hate crimes against Asian Americans that are happening in New York City. What do you think, Tammy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it good to get the police involved in this sort of thing? Oh it's going back to critical race theory. <laughs> I know, seriously. Exactly. I feel like I'm having... This is actual critical race theory <laughs> question, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, like, can the police solve racism is a real critical <laughs> race theory question. Yeah. <laughs> it gives me flashbacks to the whole, like, Peter Peter Liang, Akai mm, Gurley, yeah. where there's so much opportunistic, um, yeah, influence peddling by the cops in our Asian communities. Um I think the dynamics of this are entirely predictable and like not very surprising. I think it's really unfortunate though that, um, yeah, that certain of these groups that would cooperate with the NYPD could have confidence that they would actually deliver the goods that they are promising given, uh, for instance, like post 9-11 relationships between the NYPD and Muslim communities. I don't think we have any reason to believe that there would be targeted policing in a way that is beneficial as opposed to more surveillance oriented. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't you think it's mostly a messaging campaign too. Definitely, right? yeah. Because like, what can they really do to stop these hate crimes from happening? Like, you can't do anything. They're just random acts, right? Like, yeah. if some dude says, gets mad and says something, or spits on someone, or hits somebody. It's not like you can like set up a dragnet to, I, you know, and whatever yeah. dragnet you set up would be so racist anyway that it would be, it would be like, you know, it would be like Robocop or something like that. Like, you can't, you can't. <laughs> You can't actually do anything. What you can do is have the NYPD put up, you know, make like a yellow. That would be funny if it's a yellow ribbon, but like, you know, like some sort of like <laughs> ribbon that they wear, that they're aware of this, as, that this is an issue and like make an ad, right? Like that's that's what they're talking about. Um, yeah. Andy, what about you? Yes. I mean, what are they being asked to do? They're just, they're being asked to like increase police presence in Chinatown or what? Um, it's or, unclear what they actually do. Yeah. It's a task force, which just I means mean, it's I've, messaging. At the same time, you're you are sympathetic to to um, complaints that I mean I don't know I'm not involved in these dynamics. I keep reading about them in terms of like like Peter Liang versus Akai Gurley, obviously, and so I, I am curious about this. What the, is actually it's like on the on the ground? I but when I read like quotes that are something like the police 
protects everyone but us like that does you know there's i can be sympathetic to that yeah is that a hot take <laughs> no no i mean it calls back to the la riots right which is a yeah. radicalizing moment for right. a lot of koreans where they realized that the police weren't going to protect them and they're you know and that the fire department wasn't going to come in and put out the fires in their businesses and you know they basically were just like america is not for us either um yeah i I think that 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 moment is happening a lot and um from a completely pragmatic standpoint does it matter that the nypd is saying this stuff matters to us it doesn't matter to me you know but you know who am i i'm like some dude sitting in his basement you know uh, (laughs) it's like totally assimilated if i was like a delivery worker who was scared Mm I don't know. Maybe it would matter to me, you know, even though I think delivery workers probably hate the cops. Just well, that's as much what as, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That like there are also segments of this community that have had a lot of police interaction, but it's been the bad way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is so what we're talking about here is basically just like middle class people, I think, like middle right. class. Right. So it's Asian like a generational divide, families. but it's also a class divide. Right. And yeah. yeah. Well, like business owners want, want to make sure, right, sure. that your stuff doesn't get smashed. Exactly. Uh, I think North Polling shows kind of like the poll you just mentioned jay like most a lot of uh immigrant groups or non-white groups support the police um, oh yeah for sure yeah in a way that you know defies defies the discourse yeah i think that's also gonna be you know my my thing is just the election that i've said this many times on the show and on twitter just i think that the swing to the right for immigrant groups is well underway you know and i think part (laughs) of it is law and order as well right like yeah Um, and the anti-black parts of law and order as well, right? Like we just have to accept that that's true, um, yeah. that a lot of people feel that way and that, you know, part of the job is of people is to go in and, you know, try and figure out what to do with it. But, you know, the issue is not to like pretend that the issue, that it doesn't exist, you know, like we have to at least admit that it exists. Um, I don't, I don't think that this, I, I, I think that I, the, the bigger question that I have to you guys that I another another thing that I think about is like let's say that we're like the president of Asian America, right? <laughs> <laughs> not even just the president. We're like the mind dictator, right? We're it's the like a G- triple presidency. <laughs> we're the Jim Jones of Asian America. You know, and they'll, the the Asian America will do whatever we say, um, including like drinking yeah. the flavor, you know, the cyanide flavor aid. Uh, would, we, would, would you? Would you? Would you? Would you add, like, how much of a focus would you put in on these hate crimes going on? Like, how much would you want it to be at the forefront of what people think about? Hmm. I would not want it to be at the forefront of what people think about. <laughs> yeah. okay, and I why, would try to use that as a way to talk about larger structural injustices. But that's why I'm not elected to anything. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's hard. It's hard to imagine giving a speech where it's like, forget about the hate crimes. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know you have a black eye, but have you ever heard? Of yeah, I know your. I know your neighbor was just lit on fire. But listen, uh, <laughs> exactly. Here's a copy of uh, you know. Here, have you read Franz Fanon? Here you, <laughs> here you go. Here it is in tiny. Um, yeah, uh, Andy, what about you? Would you put it at the forefront of, of what? Yeah, no, it's just like, that would be such a, it would be automatically translated into like jingoistic, our group versus everyone else. Yeah. You know, which is, I think how politicians work, but that's why I guess I'm not a politician. I wouldn't, (laughs) I wouldn't want to be a vanguard in that way. I don't know. 
Uh, yeah, I, I find it very complicated to talk about just because I think that it isn't. It is. It would be the animating force, right? Like it is what gets people to care about politics is that they see these images. But the problem with these particular images is that the only ones that are shared are of black people and of Latino people attacking Asian people, right? Like, and so it leads to a certain type of retrenchment of already existing racism within the community. But the other part about it is that, like. I don't know. I, I just think it's probably the one thing that people that a lot of Asian Americans do care about. But when you see it expressed politically, mm-hmm. not necessarily in these WeChat groups, but, you know, amongst people like us who might be a little bit more red pilled or nationalistic than we are, you know, it is disturbing to see. Right. Like you it is it does sort of it's like a us versus them. We have to protect our own. I, I have friends who are buying guns and shit, you know, and they live in L.A. Oh, wow. And I'm just like. What are you scared of, dude? You know, like your brain is poisoned is what I want to tell them. But to them, it's a very real concern. And it's very hard for me to be like, oh, I just live in Berkeley in this like very in this nice neighborhood. (laughs) I ride my electric bike around and, you know, I write articles for the, you know, whatever, you know, like, what do you, you know, what are you afraid of? For them, it's a very real thing. And uh, it feels like a real to say don't do that, it feels like it's such a position of privilege, right? Like, it, it, even if your counter argument is that we should, you know, destroy capitalism or we should have universal health care instead and that we can't focus on both of them at the same time and that one of them actually leads to a mentality that would preclude those things from happening because it leads to a certain type of capitalist nationalist mentality where we should, like, build our economic base in, in the way that Koreatown was after the riots and that we should protect against everything and hire, like, a fucking privatized security force right like those are types of things solutions that would happen um i don't know it's hard to like tell people to not think about that when they're afraid um and i think a lot of people are very afraid and in terms of getting people to stop being afraid does the nypd task force do that probably a little bit right and so (laughs) i don't know i'm not saying any of this is good but i think that it's like impossible for it to not be the political main political focus right now right yeah that's why you know it requires us to be Jim Jones figures to actually convince people <laughs> to not do it. It all comes back. To it all comes down back to Jim Jones uh, and my de- Jones out of my desire to be Jim Jones. You know? <laughs> um, all right. Our next question is, um, do we want to do this one? I think we do. Right. What does it mean? Cammy, this is a great one for you because you know, I think that I, I, I get these emails where it's essentially just like, um, they're like, Andy is so smart and Tammy like has all this great information about her experience in life. And then that's it. You know, and <laughs> there's, there's nothing positive about me. Well, most of the emails are like, I love Jay. I've read yeah. his work for 20 years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, I, I think the, the one thing that's really like is like, oh, I knew who Jay was beforehand. But, you know, I really like that Andy, Andy and Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> the implication is like. Um, what does it mean to organize I hear this term used all the time but I don't feel like I understand what it entails for a long time being politically engaged in quotes for me has stopped at voting with your wallet type consumer decisions Ugh, I know is in parentheses there or trying to be progressive (laughs) through my job Um, this is a very good question this is from Ollie Um, Tammy how would you answer this because I think this is this again goes to the you know, the idea that people don't know how to politically engage politically anymore, right? They, they actually don't know what the avenues are. And the specific question is he's upper middle class and he feels out of place. I'm assuming he uh, organized doing labor organizing. Yeah. And I think that's also something 
I've thought well, about. You need some need some labor organizers then. Yeah, you know, a lot of upper middle class labor organizers. All right, so. um, I guess I would first say to Ollie that regardless of your class, you can get involved, and that a lot of very committed activists and organizers are from the upper class. And it doesn't mean that you forget who you are or you deny it. In fact, you just are trying to channel your resources towards causes that you believe in. So if you are like in college and wondering about a job, you should definitely try to be a labor organizer. (laughs) Um, I guess I'd be curious to hear your guys' opinions. To me, organizing is a group of people getting together to try to change something and to try to change something for the better, hopefully. And I think it can take a variety of forms. I think what we generally are talking about on this show is like community organizing, which is, you know, when you are trying to do a cross class, you know, mobilization for a goal, you know, to change in your community. And so that both speaks to place in terms of it being like geographically something that is meaningful, that people can feel and that they understand. And it also speaks to, you know, the fact that it doesn't have to just be a small group of people that is very similar. Um, Then I think there are different, you know, we can talk more about like what political organizing is. And, you know, people are using a lot of like kind of social, like media based organizing also. But I would say that the classic organizing is just getting together in person to try to identify the forces that are working against you and then to come up with solutions. Yeah, it's uh, it's I I think a big tent version is better. And I think part of the reason why it's hard for people to hard for young people to understand this, including is that you see things happen because of online opinion shifting and, you know, mass Mm -hmm. mention or ratioing and stuff like that. And so you see that as being effective organizing like did you see like the university of georgia was saying that they weren't going to have any polling stations on campus and then everyone got really mad online and then the next day they changed it Mm -hmm. like you know so i think that people see that as a form of organizing which it is you know but um i don't think that's what our questioner was answering i think what our listener was asking is you know more addressed by what you're saying um let's go to the last question tammy because i know you have to get out of here which is this is from jael or joel joel or I think it's JL. JL, okay. Um, My eyesight is fading. Part of the problem with uh, ethnic studies, this is about ethnic studies, which we've discussed a lot, which is, and this, we're going to read from part of his email, which was very long and interesting, or her email, which is part of the problem with ES is the fact that you can't really have these conversations in the university because the faculty and graduate students are too invested in saying they're changing the world by just, quote, existing. And my, uh, in, in parentheses, they say my existence is resistance and in the name of professionalism discouraging meaningful organizing from happening Mm -hmm. the level of cynicism is overbearing and our program mainly uh progresses or prepares undergrads and grads to become diversity managers who talk the woke talk and know how to skillfully refrain from their self-interest as being or reframe their interest as being quote for the community it's really bad in many of the critical questions Jay posed to Viet Thanh Nguyen in the interview are, in my experience, is actually spot on terms in, of identifying the assimilationist impulse running through the discipline. I am of the opinion that the diversity project needs to go, uh, needs to go as soon as possible and that we have to refuse to engage our politics on its terms. Um, I did a horrible job reading that, but uh, the, we get the point right here. Um, Andy, what, what, what do you think about this? This is a 
this, I think is the most forceful affirmation yeah. that we've gotten or critique that we've gotten in our emails about ethnic studies. Yeah, the idea that uh, the whole point of the program is to pre prepare people to do white fragility type <laughs> training is, I thought, kind of drove home the point of the criticisms that you and Viet Thanh Nguyen were kind of throwing out there. And uh, on a personal note, I think I've always been curious, like, why didn't I do Asian American studies? And reading about this makes me think, okay, well, like, uh, it has its own problems also. And it's not, <laughs> and it's not, and it has its own political problems also. So, you know, grass is greener on the other side, but not, not necessarily Good. better. Good work, 23-year-old Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you made the right choice. You made the right choice. I mean, you know, who you knows really, if it's the right really, choice? You really you crushed know, like, that one. <laughs> <laughs> all, yeah, I mean, I should have just, you know, gone to, like, McKinsey or something. But uh. <laughs> um, Yeah. Um, well, okay, so what about this idea that um, – that my existence is resistance. I think this is the most provocative part of this email. And I think that's what we should end a conversation on because, uh, again, Tammy, you have to go. But I, I do want to get to this point because it's something that I think about a lot, right, which is that um, there is this thing that Bill Clinton said about how, um, you know, we should have ideological friends with the, who are ideologically diverse. And the response <laughs> to that is always like, well, if I'm a minority, I can't have ideological diverse friends if the diverse ideology is that I shouldn't exist, right? And I always think, I read that stuff and I'm like, look, I don't know, like, sure, you shouldn't be friends with like full on racists who think you shouldn't exist. But like the bar for that is so strange, right? Where somebody who like has problems with the 1619 Project might end up being on that list of people who you can't engage with because of those, on those terms. And so there's this existential idea that underpins a lot of this that I, do find to be troubling myself as a minority, you know, um, where like, I don't know if my existence necessarily is politicized immediately, right? That um, I don't know if me being in these spaces means that it is political progress, right? Like, and th I think that is a lot of what the, of what the conversations are. Um, I, you know, I remember being at uh, this talk that Charles, I was, covering it as a reporter. I was not going because Charles Murray was speaking at the University <laughs> of Michigan. <laughs> but like, you know, I wanted, we went with a camera crew to see what, what a deplatforming and a university actually looks like, right? And so we're there and maybe we shouldn't have been there. If you're mad about that, then you can, you know, email the show and say like, you know, media shouldn't be there. But I think it's an interesting and compelling thing to try and capture on, on film. And one of the, uh, Charles Murray is speaking. A lot of the students are doing the right thing. They're challenging him a lot of them are making a lot of noise to make it so that he can't speak i also think that's the right thing if that's their choice but i just remember in the middle of it this student comes up and he like stay i think i've told this story before but maybe not on the podcast but like he stands up he gets in front of charles murray and he goes like i am a queer most or uh, arab american you know and you are killing me you know like your existence is killing me and i was like and you know and then the, there's this hilarious moment where this it's not a hilarious moment, but like, you know, I found it hilarious where this, this dude who, this is in Michigan. So there's a lot of Arab Americans in Michigan, right? Like in, in the Dearborn area. So this guy had, had driven to see Charles Murray speak and he starts screaming at this guy in Arabic, you know? And the, the, the kid who had said Charles Murray was trying to kill him turns around and is like, I don't speak Arabic. I'm sorry. And the, the other guy goes, you should fucking learn that. It was this amazing like cultural moment where and, like Charles Murray is standing up there like totally like chill. It's just like, what just happened? I'm standing in the corner behind the cameraman, like trying not to laugh because like, it's like not out of like, like I think it's funny, but out of just pure, like this is like the most perfect encapsulation of what this is, you know, where it's just like, like, 
I do think that there is too much of a focus on this existential idea, right? That 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 we will die, you know, that that our lives are always on the line. Uh, and that I think that does actually take away from what any policy measures could possibly be, right? Because the focus is entirely on the individual and their their right to exist. And if that's not actually really under threat, like this student at the University of fucking Michigan, you know, like it's elite, it's like a kid who's going to most likely go on to have like, like he is set up to have all the material benefits that somebody in the University of Michigan will have, right? It's one of the best universities in the country. The idea that Charles Murray speaking there is like a threat to his life, I find to be absurd, you know, but I do think that that's sort of what's, what's taught. Mm. Like, I think that that is the base level of what's taught. It, am, I, am I right or wrong about that? This is like the most red pill the show has ever gotten. But like, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> I find it to be, I just find it to be not a good focus. Like, I don't think that you can get from there to an actual thing yeah. outside of let's get rid of everybody who's a threat to my life. Yeah. And then that ends up just being, well, we should just be, you know, then actually all the other choices that we make in our life don't matter. Right. So if this kid goes on to be like work at McKinsey and fix bread prices and like, you know, destabilize the the Canadian grocery market so that so that some people actually starve to death, you know, like like it doesn't matter because like this this person is morally correct because he is like identify, you know, he's like a queer Muslim and he is a you know, he is like a minority at that point. I mean, what you're pointing out is like, in a weird way, the left liberal, some left liberals kind of take the race war framing of the racist and just kind of invert it. But there's still like a race war as the basic premise of like, you know, one one group's existence threatens the other group's existence. Right. And yeah. that's, and that's bizarre. And yeah. that's like, there's, there's, there is a, there is a video and um, where there, where a comedian was kind of pointing out like, leftists and rightists kind of agree on like the same thing like 90 percent of the time um when they talk about like race war and talk about like mm. how like whites white white people and non-white white people fundamentally have different cultures and you have to like decolonize or get rid of like you know the like white we have to get rid of like whiteness every uh in like non-white groups and like both groups are like yeah we agree <laughs> and uh, i think that uh for a lot of extreme you know, this is the critique of identity, identitarianism, right? Where it's about who you are as opposed to like what policies get passed or what you do. So, you know. But I think to uh, the charitable reading of this Arab American student is that he's articulating a kind of, you know, European view of free speech, right? Where there is actually a difference between a hate speech that threatens one's life and a speech that articulates an idea. And, you know, I think in certain contexts that makes a lot of sense to me. So, you know, I don't know. In this particular case, it seems a bit more <laughs> maybe extreme, and to exi- you know, things that happen in the academy are much easier to laugh off for the most part. But um, I was also thinking about how this whole like the existence stuff and like the kind of you know trigger warning stuff and a lot of this stuff around like safety connects to a discourse that my friend and I were talking about the other day that we really don't like, which is like a lot of talk about like black and brown bodies and this like body thing that's kind of like this kind of dehumanized, like theoretical um, thing that also to me connects to like Afro-pessimism a little bit about like always feeling like, yeah, we are like a decayed body. We are like a body and there is no, nothing sort of else of the stuff of life, you know? And so I think there is like in this kind of like, journey of critique, a way for it to take like a kind of bad detour, you know, around where we're sort of like obsessed with like 
body and all of our stuff becomes so extreme. Our language becomes so extreme around like existence and like threats yeah. and safety. So I think we just need to be careful about that. But do you think it is, do you think that is inherently a like depoliticizing in a way to have it be so existentially based? Cause like, that's the part that I found to be the most compelling or the most, the part that bothers me the most, like I don't really care the way that people think about it. I think hate speech is mm-hmm. bad too, but I probably have a much higher tolerance for it than the majority of people who agree with me politically. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, you know, I think the ACLU should defend the Klan still, you know, like, yeah, and I, 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 think agree the, with that. I think the fact that they don't is actually a huge loss for them, you know, and erodes their moral authority. I think Stormfront should exist. I don't think Reddit should ban subreddits, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, you know, these are mm-hmm. generally my thoughts but like and have been my thoughts you know since i was 16 year old you know debater but uh so i i think i'm more skeptical of the guy saying you're trying to kill me with your speech than 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 you are there but the part that is interesting to me jerry is just like well yes then the next part is like actually what i do doesn't matter you know because i i am worthy of being protected and everyone everyone else should protect me and if i decide that i want to become a lawyer and work for like a law firm that goes around like you know uh, defending uh, Shell Oil or something like that, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. Because at least I'm on the diversity committee there. Yeah. 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 And no, I think it can be very de- depoliticizing. Yeah, for the reasons you articulate. That you know, once we go into a mode where we only care about this kind of basically like a signifier of a body, like a thing that is there, you know, we kind of stop questioning the content. Like that's that's a serious problem. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's like it's if you look at the gentrification debate, it's generally like that, right? Where um, there's like this sort mm-hmm. of existentialism around there where it's like, and it is tagged entirely to one's race and it is not tagged to economy at all. So the pattern of, of gentrification in America usually happens where like there is a black neighborhood and the people who gentrify it are immigrants, right? Like the first wave of gentrification comes from immigrants and many of those immigrants are black immigrants, right? Or black or brown immigrants. And that there, that is the first wave of gentrification. But the people who do that gentrification don't really see it as gentrification because they think you know, they're thinking more existentially and they're, you know, based on race. Skin color. Yeah, yeah. and skin color. And that that those people, there's no question about that economic choice that is made to gentrify the existing neighborhood. The gentrification that matters is white people gentrifying them, right? Like that's where the, that's where the arguments come out. And the reason why I think that people don't think about themselves politically in their own actions in that sort of way is because they identify as being part of like the oppressed team, right? And that as long as you can identify as the oppressed team, then you don't have to actually take meaningful political action yourself. Mm, I don't <laughs> know about that. Danny's making a face. <laughs> I think the gentrification <laughs> patterns don't look like that in a lot of places anymore. But they I, definitely I do in New York City, that. though, right? Uh, definitely I, in New York City. I think there are places where there's like a classic gentrification where you talk about like immigrant inflow, artist inflow, like gay inflow, you know, that kind of thing. But I think like that's so much now subordinated to like huge capital Mm -hmm. in neighborhoods that gentrification just looks is like we use the word still, but it's something different. Okay, but I'm I'm, I'm talking about like, but this is a thing that happens. And that, like, within that debate, I think it's interesting, like, who has to be, f- hold themselves accountable and who doesn't have to hold themselves accountable. Right. Gentrification, and, when I ask my students what it means, they usually just mean it's white people, yeah. as opposed to, like, the origin of the term, right? It's upper class. Yeah. And yeah. We, I think the problem that 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 JL is um, highlighting is a real one, which is that 
um, like I think that is what's taught in ethnic studies programs. You know, I think it is, and I think that uh, that there will be a lot of people tweeting and writing emails saying that I'm wrong, and I'm sure there are counterexamples. But I don't know. I I meet these kids when they come out of these programs. I talk to them. You know, uh, mm. we've heard from a lot of them in our email and and on Twitter. And if that's the outcome of it, I don't think that that is a political outcome, right? I think that is an outcome that is made to say, I need more people with my body who are uh, who look like me. And for example, like let's say like the fact checking group at the New Yorker or something like that, right? Like I need more people who look like me to be on the board of the of of uh, I don't know Time Warner or something like that. Or I need more people who look like me to win Emmys, right? Like that that's the politics. Yeah, that's the politics that it will obviously lead to. And that those politics haven't really yielded very much for anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, it's like um, being Asian or being another group becomes like an aesthetic, right? It's just like, it's a look, right. it's an appearance. Yeah. Right. And then beyond that, you know, like the, I mean, from my perspective, it's like, oh, you need more history. Like you actually have to know what, what, what what's behind the mask. And, uh, That's right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I we brought it back to Jeff Yang though, you know, or like. <laughs> Ethnic studies, as currently construed, leads to Hollywood Asians bad. <laughs> Jeff Yang is the endpoint of all ethnic studies and woke and like woke. Yeah, uh, woke is that you have somebody who cynically uses all of them for their own personal gain. Um, yeah, so we should end the show on slandering Jeff Yang as always. Um, if uh, we were supposed to go very short, but Tammy, I have a very uh, and we are aware that that we. We're going to try and this cut. We're doing an experiment here. We're going to cut this one down to like manageable length. And so we have a lot to cut, but I don't think this is going to be very hard because there are large portions of the show that you listeners never hear every week where it's me literally talking for four minutes straight about nothing. And then I'm, you know, I just look at the waveform and I'm just like, oh, that's like four straight minutes of me talking about nothing. So we just cut it out. So I'll just cut out more of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you could, uh, you could email our show um, at, TTSG, no, I'm sorry, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. I swear this is not a bit where I forget our email every week. I actually forget it every week. You can tweet at us, uh, TT at TTSG pod, or you can send us DMs. We've been getting a lot of your responses back so far, and honestly, it's like, you know, I don't know. For me, it's been amazing. Like, I think about it, I feel like I'm talking to a lot of people, and, um, yeah. and we hear feedback for ideas. It makes our ideas a lot better. You know, and it gives us different perspective. Like, I think, you know, this last email that we got is a perfect example of that, where it's just like, you know, I don't know. Now we're like cool. part of, yeah. we're part of I like, didn't know there's so many um, lefty Asians out there. Yeah, me neither. They're all young or old. It's like, they're either like 50-year-old academics or they're like 20, 20-year-olds, 20 you know, or they're like 20-year-olds, which is great. If that's our listener group, I'm very like happy. Like voting demographic. Yes, really it's old and really young. Yeah. It's like people who used to be uh, in SDS, you know, like the Asians in SDS, or it's the Asians who are trying to start SDS again. Like, that's our, that's our listening demographic, which is fine. Um, okay, well, thanks to all of you, and Annie and Tammy, thanks for coming on the show, as always. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Bye.